Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, you'll find the notes in the bulletin. Luke chapter 9, and this morning we'll be studying the first um, 10 verses. I'd like to begin our time by reading Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 10a. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because, of, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And this morning, as we study this section of Luke's gospel, we will continue in the theme that Luke has been highlighting of demonstrating the superiority, the supremacy of Jesus in every area. As we, as we noticed, after introducing the parables, we really only got one, maybe two parables, the parable of the sower front and center, the parable of the lamp and the lampshade, and then we move into a series of, of miracle power demonstrations. First, as Jesus calms the storm, raising the question of this whole section, who then is this? Then he heals the demoniac of the Gerizines. He knows who Jesus is. Then, upon his return, he, he demonstrates not just that he has power over nature, not just that he has power over demons in the, in the spirit world, but he has power over disease, the power of contagious holiness. The woman touches the hem of his garment. She's healed. What no physician could do, Jesus did unawares. And he has the power over life and death as he raises Jairus' daughter. This morning we'll see that Jesus not only has this power, but he has power to give, power to, to bequest unto his followers. But more than that, we're going to see the kingdom advance, the kingdom advancement, as Jesus' program takes a, a next major step. Now one of the things we do when we study a passage is try to set it in its context, and you may be wondering why I've chosen to include the account of Herod in here. Wouldn't really verses 1 to 6 make a more simple unit? What does Herod's have to do with this? Well, the reason why I've included it is because Luke has included it. The reason we read all the way through the beginning of verse 10 is Luke has sandwiched in the account of Herod's response before the return of the apostles. It's Luke who inserts it here, and so Luke sees these two accounts as relating to one another, and so we're going to study them that way. 
And that's going to help us get some of our idea of what, what are we to see here? What's the point? We could do sermons on missions. We could do sermons on the value of simple living. We could, do, we could teach on many topics here, but Luke has contrasted these two kingdoms. The king is present. King Jesus is on earth. His kingdom is growing. He now multiplies his ministry from one miracle-working preacher to 13, 12 apostles and himself still. And then we see the response from the kingdom of this world. We see Herod's response. That's the contrast. That's the setup. That's why Luke puts these things here before telling us upon their return they told him all that he had done. We don't know what else they did. This is the first of two sendings in Luke. The next will occur in chapter 10, and there we do get a report back as he sends out 72. But here he just sends out the 12. And before announcing their return, we get this snapshot of Herod. And so I really think we're to see these two contrasting kingdoms, Jesus and his program advancing and the response of Herod, who we already know is a wicked man. And you remember, Herod has already arrested John the Baptist, we're told that in chapter 3 because John the Baptist had the audacity to preach against him and his illegal marriage to Rodius, his, his sister-in-law. And then we know that John was in jail because he sent the messengers to Jesus in chapter 7. John's fate has been left hanging. We find out John's fate here incidentally. So, so we see Jesus commission the twelve And then we're going to see Jesus confounds Herod. We're going to look at this text in two parts. Jesus commissions the twelve. Jesus confounds Herod. Now, it's interesting. Back in chapter 6, all the way back in chapter 6, in verse 12, is where we learn that Jesus commissioned, that he appointed twelve apostles, and we get their name. And then, interestingly, they've done virtually nothing in the narrative. I mean, they're, they're part of the group that's with him, We're not even sure if they're the ones on the boat with him. I mean, it's just his disciples. Sometimes they get grouped into his disciples. Almost certainly they were. But we're just told he and his disciples got on the boat. After introducing such major players back in chapter 6, from a narrative standpoint, they've done virtually nothing. And now here, after their introduction three chapters earlier, they finally take part distinctively in the narrative. And yet even in this, the the, the focus is still on Jesus. The focus is still on who is this then? You'll notice the question the disciples raised in the boat, who then is this, is the exact question on Herod's mind. The exact question on Herod's mind. Look at verse 9. John I beheaded, but who is this? That's the theme of this section we're going through, Luke. Who is Jesus? The disciples ask it. Herod asks it. Jesus, in in its culmination up in verse 18, asks the disciples themselves, who do people say that I am? Then Peter gives his great confession in verse 20, you are the Christ of God. And then a little later in the book, God the Father himself answers the question in verse 35. A voice came out loud from heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Who who is Jesus? That's that's the question being raised. It's a parallel theme being developed in chapter 9. What does it mean to be a disciple? What is discipleship? And we're going to learn about both of these things this morning. So let's dive in. Looking at the first section, Jesus commissions the 12. Jesus commissions the 12. I want you to look at it in, in three parts. First, there's their mission. 
Jesus gives them a mission. He gives them a, a, a goal, a task, something to do. Then he gives them the means, the equipment that they need. And then he gives them their method. We're going to look at mission, means, and method. Verse 1, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So what's their mission? Their mission is one of proclamation, of, of preaching. And the basic notion of, a, of, of this is to herald, to announce. It's not fundamentally to debate, to discuss. There are heralds. The king is sending out heralds to announce a message. This is, this is fundamentally the same identity Jesus has given to himself, if you remember. Turn, turn back to Luke chapter 4. How does Jesus identify his ministry? He identifies his ministry as the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. As soon as he returns from the temptation, he goes to his hometown, to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, and then he quotes from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news, gospel. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him and began to say to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's me, Jesus says. That's me. And three times in the self-identifying passage in Isaiah, to proclaim, to proclaim, and you'll note, to accomplish, to actually set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus here, in calling the disciples together and to give them this commission, is doing nothing more than, than duplicating his own mission. They are now going to be equipped to herald and proclaim. And whereas Jesus is proclaiming fundamentally who he is, they're proclaiming as well who he is. It's a little different in that sense. Jesus can say, this is me, and they go out and they say, that's him. They're proclaiming the king and the kingdom. Notice something else. I've put it in the blank here. They're to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The text gives us two ways of speaking about the content of their message. In verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, they departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel. And Luke wants us to understand not that the disciples were disobedient. Jesus told us to preach the kingdom, but we think it would be a better idea to preach the gospel. But rather... These are two ways of speaking of the same thing. You know, Mike Doty um, read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15 about the message of the gospel, what Paul delivered is of first importance, that Jesus Christ um, came according to the Scriptures, died on the cross for our sins according to our Scriptures, and was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. This was not the message the apostles were proclaiming. It may sound shocking. It wasn't. So far in Luke's gospel, aside from a veiled reference at one of the prophecies at Jesus' birth to Mary, a sword will pierce your side. There has been really no mention of the death of the Messiah. That comes later in this chapter. In fact, look, immediately after, in fact, Peter's great confession of who Jesus is, in verse 20, he said, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And now, for the first time in Luke's gospel, Jesus plainly speaks of his coming death. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. And that's, that's when this is clearly introduced in Luke's gospel. 
So up to this point, think about it. John the Baptist, what was he proclaiming? The, ki- the king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, prepare yourselves, turn from your sin, and, and trust in this coming king. That's John the Baptist's message, and Luke calls it gospel. And then Jesus arrives and says, I am Isaiah 61. I am the Lord's anointed, his Christ, his Messiah. And I am here to proclaim a message and to give sight to the blind. And if you'll recognize your spiritual blindness, if you will recognize your spiritual captivity, then I can heal you and I can set you free. If you'll only trust in me, if you'll only believe in me. Still no, no, no mention yet of a sacrificial atonement for sins. That, that, that hasn't been brought out in the narrative yet. See, this side of the cross, the message of the gospel is unchanging. This side of the cross, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, we, we proclaim the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as you're approaching the cross from the other side, it draws into greater and greater clarity. Now, what was unchanging throughout time is men and women have always needed to trust what God has said. They respond to his revelation in faith. What are the apostles preaching when they're preaching the gospel? The king is here. He's Jesus. And the Lord has indeed given him power to heal. The Lord has granted him power and authority over demons and over disease. And if you'll turn to him, he will set you free. If you'll turn to him, he will open your blind eyes. If you will repent of your sins and put your faith in him, you can be forgiven. They'd seen him forgive the man lowered down from the roof. They, they don't fully yet understand the notion of a dying, sacrificed Messiah. That will come. That, that's the message they're preaching. The kingdom is what they're preaching insofar as they're preaching the king. The king who offers this kingdom. If you remember in, in Luke chapter 6, on the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So he's the king, but he offers invitation into this kingdom to others. And those who are his subjects then fall under his rule as he's had person after person fall down at his feet. As he told Peter, follow me. And Peter leaves everything and tells Levi, follow me. Levi leaves everything and follows him. They're proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, insofar as they're proclaiming the presence of the king and a call to fealty to him, obedience to him, trust in him. That's their message. And he also gives them power to demonstrate the power of the kingdom so that to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And then God has granted them through Jesus the power to demonstrate this power of the kingdom. That's the purpose of the miracles. They, they were to confirm the message. We saw that back in Luke 4. He's to proclaim the giving of sight to the blind, the setting of captives free. And what's he go out and do? He, he releases a man captive to a demon. He heals people. He's demonstrating, in fact, that he is able to do this. Now, the miracles often in our reading of the Bible or grab our greatest attention, but Luke has been consistently emphatic on this point. They're secondary. They are secondary. The message preached is what is primary. The seed in the parable of the sower is the word of God. And everything depends on how it is heard. Remember? The miracles are merely there to confirm Jesus is, is giving the same power, the same commission to his apostles. They are to preach a message, and they are to confirm that message with power. So Jesus gives them this mission. He's duplicating himself, and he's also preparing them ultimately for their full ministry. These are the men, after all, to whom Jesus, at the end of the, the book of Luke, will commission in chapter 24. 
saying, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You, he's speaking to the twelve, are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's going to give them a final commission there and power. So this is more of an apostolic internship, if you will. This is a trial ministry, a short-term missions program, if you will. Because they go out and they come right back shortly thereafter. And he's going to do it again in chapter 10 with a larger group. All in preparation for their final lifelong commission of spreading the gospel to the world. So he gathers them. This is Jesus does this. He, he's the initiative one here. This isn't something the disciples came up with. And he gives them this commission, their mission of proclamation and demonstration. And he gives them the means to do it as well. Notice the two words there. He gave them power and authority. And here's the distinction. What's the difference between power and authority? Power, first blank, speaks to the ability to do something the ability to do something. Authority speaks to the right to do something. Jesus gives them both the ability and the right. Over demons and disease. Now that's important to note because there's a lot of confusion in some circles these days over Christians and should we be casting out demons and should we be you know, doing some of these things. I would suggest to you that unless you can find me in the Bible where we clearly have been also given this power and this right, you should be very hesitant. Turn, turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Jesus gives them both the power and the right to command demons disease. In Acts 19, we, we encounter some men who have neither the power nor the right, and it does not work out so well for them. Verse 11 God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away from the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. These, these seven sons of Sceva had neither the power nor the right to do this, and they were called on it, much to their chagrin. But Jesus gives them this power. In fact, one of the things you'll notice is in chapter 10, turn over to chapter 10, when he sends the 72 out, there's no mention explicitly of giving them the, the authority over demons. I was talking to Pastor Daniel earlier this week and trying to think if we could think of anyone who is not an apostle with a capital A who, who had demonstration of this type of power. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 and others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, say, Peace be upon this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what is provided for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Notice there's no mention of, of demons there. Now it's possible he, he did that as well, but, but Luke only explicitly references that here in chapter 8. Jesus, in other words, here's what I'm trying to get you to understand. As people read some of these narratives, what we need to understand is narrative is not normative. Narrative is not normative. Narrative tells us what happened. It does not necessarily tells us, tell us what we ought to always do as well. As we'll see, in fact, in a minute, if you think that narrative is normative, you're going to get confused very quickly. Um, this is to tell us what happened. These are specific men. They're apostles with a capital A. And this is a specific ministry that Jesus has given and the specific power and authority he has given them. And we're supposed to learn something about Jesus from this Narrative does not mean something is normative. It tells us what is, what has happened. Um, so he gives them the, the ability and the right, the power and the authority over disease and over demons, just as he had. In fact, that same combination of words is used of Jesus back in chapter 4 after he comes to Nazareth, reads Isaiah 61, and he goes to a synagogue on the Sabbath in verse 31. He went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for he teached his word-possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, Having done him no harm, they were all amazed and said to one another, What then is this word? For with authority and power, there it is, he commands the unclean spirits. So authority and power typifies Jesus' ministry. He, he gives it to his disciples. And that's the other crucial thing to note here. The second point, the king is able to empower his servants. The king is able to empower his servants. We've been seeing Jesus' power. He speaks to the storm, and he speaks to the wind and waves, and they obey. He rebukes his, Peter's mother-in-law's fever, and the fever ends. He speaks to the dead son of the widow, and he rises from the dead. He speaks to the dead girl, and she rises. His word has power and authority, and Jesus now grants it to his disciples, to his apostles. How powerful is Jesus? He has power in himself, and he has power to give, power to delegate, in fact. And that's the terminology even used setting up the, the Great Commission at the end of Luke. You are my witnesses to these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, the reason I, I stress the difference between narrative and normative is because God has granted us power as well for the ministry we have. 
But it's not identical to this scenario here. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity. We too are called to preach the gospel. We too are called to be witnesses. Make no mistake, we are not capital A apostles. And so there's a lot of overlap. And Paul speaks of our ministry this way. If you turn to 2 Corinthians 5, probably the best passage I'm aware of of what ministry God has empowered us for. 2 Corinthians 5. One of my favorite passages, you know, Mike, Mike, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great gospel summary passage. 2 Corinthians 5 is also as well. Probably my favorite summary passage. Let's start in verse 18. All this is from God. By the way, I want you to notice the repetition of one key word here. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled. We've got a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So we've got a ministry of reconciliation, and now we've got a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's that wonderful gospel summary, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's that's the ministry we have. We're not apostles. And he's given us his spirit. He's given us power to perform that as well because the king not only has power, but he can grant power. Next, we move on to the method and again, if we think that narrative is normative, if we think that what we read happens, we should absolutely imitate, you're, you're going to get confused right quickly. Because one of the things you note in these instructions is they differ from instructions to a similar ministry Jesus gives just a few chapters later in Luke, as we will see. This is for a specific time and a specific place, and there are, are principles we can draw from this. There are timeless Aspects, but it's not as simple as saying, well, he told them to do that. We ought to do that. But how does he tell them he wants them to, to conduct their ministry? Well, he begins by telling them what they are not to take. And the blank here is no extra staff, bag, bread, money, or tunics. No extra staff, bag, bread, money, or tunics. Now, why do I say extra when the ESV simply says take nothing? Two reasons. One is we've got three accounts of this um, commissioning in the Gospels. Now, there's some confusion over whether or not um, in Matthew and Mark they're dealing with this or the similar commissioning of the 72 in chapter 10. But regardless, it's clear, at least in, in Matthew and Mark, that they are to, they're able to have a, a staff. And what helps is that the Greek word here means to pick up or carry I don't think he's forbidding sandals if they're on your feet. I think the notion is the extra. If you're going to pack to go off on a trip, you're going to bring some extra sandals and some extra clothes and some extra staffs. What he's saying to them is this. However you're dressed and however you're prepared right now, that's how I want you to leave. You're not going to go and put together a pack. You're not going to go together and pack a bag. I would assume if you have a staff in your hand, that's fine. Take it. But you're not carrying it along with you into your arm. You're using it. And, And... 
You're not to um, go home and get your money first or get, get, grab a packet of lunch or some food. You're supposed to go as you are. And it's the best harmonization. So they're not to take an extra staff, bag, bread, money, or tunics. But that's still pretty radical. He's got 12 apostles, and he pretty much says to them, whatever you got with you right now, that's how you're going. I don't want you to go home. I don't want you to pack a bag. I don't want you to pick up some belongings. Just go. In the ancient world, your undergarments, what's referred to as the tunic, it's sort of, it would be your bedding as well. This is what you wore. Now, it's possible in saying no two tunics, he's actually possibly allowing them to carry one extra of that because you need to wash it and you need something to wear while you're washing it. That's possible. But, but the, in all three gospel accounts make it clear, they're to travel light. They're to travel light. Now, wh- why is that? Why would Jesus prohibit this? I think at least two reasons. One, he wants the apostles to learn. The apostles must learn to depend wholly on Jesus, to depend wholly on Jesus. Jesus comes to the scene without any of the aforementioned things either. He returns from the wilderness being tempted, begins his ministry, and yes, it will develop to the point where chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we learn that there are women ministering to him, and he, he has an entourage, and he has some financial means. He didn't begin that way. And he wants the apostles to learn to depend wholly on him. He is sufficient. God's power is sufficient. And in another way, it demonstrates his own power and authority because if they went out with provisions and money and and belongings and they came back and they were well-fed and they they survived, it would be far less miraculous than if you just, whatever you got right now, that's how you're going, go. They come back days, weeks later, and God has provided for them. In fact, this lesson of learning to trust God that God and Jesus specifically can provide for them is something he must teach them again even upon their return. That's part of the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. They still haven't fully learned this when they tell Jesus, send, send the multitudes away, there isn't enough food. And Jesus has to say, look, if I can feed these people. I can take care of them. Have them sit down in groups. So he wants them to learn to depend wholly on him. Jesus wants them to learn to depend wholly on him. And also, with the parable of the sower still ringing in our ears from a chapter before, I imagine this also, that he, they must beware the cares of the world. Remember chapter 8, verse 14? The, the, the seed that fell among thorns are those who hear, but as they go their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. If they're going to give themselves to ministry, if they're going to be doing this, imitating their Lord, they need to beware the love of riches, the love of possessions. They've got to learn, just as Jesus did, that that man's life is made up of more than those things. He moves on also to tell them not just what they can't take, but the hospitality that they are to accept. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now, what he's forbidding them from doing as they enter into a town is this. Don't sort of leapfrog from better accommodations to better accommodations to better accommodations till finally you're in the mansion. Whoever takes you when you enter, stay there. Don't shame them, and don't be concerned with getting nicer digs. Also, he makes it clear here that, that in accepting provision from those who receive you, that there is, there is a reciprocity. I talked 
earlier about the timeless principles we can draw from this. Well, the New Testament refers to this and Luke chapter 10 at least twice. And the principle that Paul gets from it is this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9.14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul in Galatians 6.6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And then quoting, this is, this is one of my favorite passages, 1 Timothy 5.18, the only direct New Testament citation of the New Testament. Paul, speaking about elders and pastors, says that those who, who are, work well labor in word and doctrine, are worthy of double honor or double pay. For the scripture says, and he quotes Deuteronomy right next to Luke 10, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So one of the timeless principles we get from this passage is that those who give themselves to the work of ministry, those who give themselves to the proclamation of the gospel, have a right, it's fitting, it's good, it's appropriate, for that, that they should also receive from that work the things that they need. They are to accept provision from those who receive them. But also, they're to announce judgment upon those who do not. Now, just as we saw that Luke chapter 8 added a secondary theme to Jesus' ministry, he's, he's first and foremost in, in, in Luke chapter 4, I'm Isaiah 61. And all Isaiah 61 mentions that Jesus quotes, I'm here to proclaim and announce good news, open blind eyes, to set captives free. Nothing negative there. Just good stuff. In Luke chapter 8, he cites another Isaiah passage in explaining why he's teaching in parables. Luke chapter 8, verse 10, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And we, when we studied that, we learned that Jesus is saying, not only am I here to announce this good news to those who will recognize their blindness, their poverty, their spiritual ruin, but to others who will not hear my word, to others who... who he uses the language of the Pharisees, view themselves healthy and in no need of a physician. He is here to blind their eyes and to bring judgment. And likewise, in commissioning the apostles, this element of judgment is added to their ministry as well. They too announce good news and pronounce judgment. It's a vivid picture. Shaking the dust off your feet if they go to a town and the town doesn't want to hear their message, they have to take their shoes off in the sight of the village, presumably, and wipe the dust off their feet. The picture is, and this was a custom the Jews had in traveling through Samaria, the picture is that you are so foul and unclean that I'm afraid the very dust from your town might contaminate me, so i got to get it off me. Now think about that. This is a radically new understanding of clean and unclean. It's not based upon touching dead bodies. Jesus touched dead bodies. He didn't become unclean. It's not based upon being Jew or Gentile. Jesus went over to the Gerasenes and where there's pigs and tombs and he didn't become unclean. Jesus was touched by a leper. He didn't become unclean. But now what we're learning is if you reject his word, you're truly unclean. And his disciples model that as they wipe the dust off their feet at these towns that will not receive the message of Jesus. This is the true uncleanness that damns. Turn over to chapter 10. Jesus himself will rail against some of these cities. Verse 13. This is upon the return of the 72. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, this is, this is where he went and did his miracles in chapter 4. Remember? And they brought the people out at the end of the Sabbath, and he healed all of their sick. Capernaum, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. This is the principle. Why, why could the disciples shake the, why could they announce this judgment just because someone didn't listen to them? Jesus makes it clear when someone is commissioned and has the authority and the power, when someone is truly commissioned to speak for the king, then Jesus can say in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In rejecting the apostles, they were rejecting Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting God the Father. And that is the basis for the judgment. That's the basis for why they wiped the dust off their feet. And so Jesus has replicated himself. We've gone from one minister, one preacher and miracle worker to 13. That's the type of power and authority Jesus has. And in so doing, we've, we've created almost a new category of clean and unclean because these people that they're wiping the dust off the feet of these towns may well have been ceremonially clean, but in their rejection of the Word of God and the rejection of the King, they demonstrate their true spiritual uncleanness. Now, in that context, Luke introduces the response of Herod. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. I'm just going to look at this quickly in two points. Herod's troubling news and Herod's perplexing question. Now, even as I said, this is the first time the disciples have taken front and center stage. They don't really take front and center stage because as Herod hears about this, his question's not about them, but about Jesus. Now, when Herod heard about all that was happening, and we might be tempted to think, well, maybe all that was happening refers to everything in Luke's gospel up to this point. But because he's inserted it, here, before they return, I think we're meant to understand it to be the more immediate context, all that was happening in Jesus sending out his apostles to replicate his ministry. And I think that's the best way of understanding it. So Herod, here's a report, here's the point, about Jesus sending the 12. And presumably the report that they actually did this. So someone tells him, he's, he's the ruler of the region of Galilee, and he's He's probably heard up to this point some rumblings about Jesus. Luke's been stressing how the word's spreading and spreading and spreading. But now, rather than one miracle-working preacher, he's got 13 overnight. 13 men going to cities proclaiming this. I mean, this, is, this is better than exponential growth. And he hears that. But his mind goes to, and his question is then, who is this Jesus? The attention's still on Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He hears the report about Jesus sending the 12. He is alarmed by the growth of Jesus' ministry. 
is alarmed by the growth of Jesus' ministry. He, he arrested John not primarily because we're told that he had a fundamental opposition to John's message. I don't think he believed John's message. I just don't think he really cared. He arrested John because John had the audacity to publicly call him out. And up to this point, he's, you know, hasn't done anything towards Jesus. Now he's heard the word. This Jesus has sent out his 12 apostles, and they too have a powerful word. And they too have the power to back it up with miracles. He's taking note, and he's becoming confounded and perplexed. He is alarmed at the growth of Jesus' ministry. So the kingdom in this world is seeing the exponential growth of the kingdom of God, which leads to Herod's perplexing question. And then he's, Herod has picked up some of the rumors, some of the gossip about who Jesus might be. Um, he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets had risen. Now, if you jump down to verse um, 19 of chapter 9, this is the exact same report that Peter and the apostles give when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets has risen. So, so Herod isn't doing any original thinking on his own. He's, he's tapped into the public murmuring, the public opinion, but he's troubled. He's finally taking note. He's finally t- paying attention to this Jewish carpenter and his, his disciples. And there's, there's a confusing report. This, is, this, by the way, is how Luke tells us John has died. He never actually records the account of John's death. It comes sort of incidentally. Perhaps he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Perhaps he's Elijah. Perhaps he's a prophet. Now, as we'll see, by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, we'll see that not only is Jesus a prophet, he is the prophet. But that's not all of who he is. Their expectations are too low. The people are wondering who he is. This is, this is reverberating Luke's theme in this section of who is Jesus. The disciples ask it. The people are confused. And we'll finally get an answer from Peter and then an answer from God the Father a little later in the chapter. And so as, as Herod learns of this tremendous sudden growth of Jesus' ministry, he's perplexed and troubled wondering who this is. Perhaps his conscience is bothering him from beheading John. John I beheaded, but who is this? Now that's really the question, isn't it? It's a question Luke wants us to stop and, and look at and think. It's a question echoing through this path. It's a question on the disciples' lips. It's the question on the people's lips. It's a question on Herod's lips. And we're to get a clear answer. We're going to get a clear answer in, in verse 20. The Christ of God. In verse 35, the Father speaking, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. But I just want to pause for a moment and challenge you. Who who is this? Who who do you believe this is? That's what Luke wants us to do. He's showing us Jesus' powerful acts. He's showing us His love and compassion. He's showing us His authority. And then He's showing us person after person going, Who is this? Who is this? And eventually, if you're reading it, you start to realize, Yeah, who is this? He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And and by faith in His name, you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can be reconciled with God. But remember what Jesus said, be careful how you hear. Now you might think things leave a little optimistically for Herod because it said he sought to see Him. That's good, right? 
Herod wants to see Jesus. This is good. No, it's not. Not for Herod at all. Um, turn, turn to Luke chapter 23. Pick it up in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. You know how we pick up that thread? Herod wanted to see Jesus. And, and, and I wouldn't make too big of a case of it back in chapter 9, but with what we're about to read in 23, I, I think it's significant that, that with all the emphasis in, in Luke 8 on the word and hearing and hearing and be careful how you hear, Herod didn't, and here's your blank, Herod desired to see and not hear Jesus. Herod desired to see and not hear Jesus. I think Luke's choice of words is intentional. It'll become clear in chapter 23. I couldn't, I couldn't make this point without 23, but let's keep reading. Is, is Herod interested in a message or a word? No. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had desired to see him, long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Show me a trick. Perform a miracle. You will wonder. So he questioned him at some length. But made no answer. He made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Before this, they'd been at enmity with each other. It's important how we hear the word. It's important how we hear this word of Jesus in Luke. And we can be tempted too. I want to see something. I want to experience something. I want to feel something. But again and again and again, we've seen it's the power of Jesus' word. It's the power of his message. It's the power of this word. And so Luke's question, I hope, will be ringing in our ears. Who then is this? And how will we respond to his word? How will his seed of his word fall in our hearts, how will we hear what we do with this light? Will we embrace it? Will we come to confess as Peter, you are the Christ of God? Or will we cover it and think of something else? Make no mistake, Jesus has power to give. He has power to grant, power to deliver. But it's for those who are disciples, for those who've come to believe in who he is, and so let every one of us, I pray, work through that question, come to a clear conviction of who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for just the clarity again and again of the supremacy, the superiority, the power of Jesus. And Lord, we want to be faithful to our commission as your ambassadors. We want to be faithful to our ministry building up of the body of Christ. And so, Lord, we, we just, uh, first, Lord, I just pray that that question of who Jesus is would be settled for everyone in this room, and that there would be no doubts, no unbelief, no confusion, and that being settled, we would come to know your power 
that frees, that saves, that opens blind eyes, and that we would give ourselves wholly to the work that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. We will gather again in 15 minutes or so for a report from one of our brothers engaged in this very work of ministry. Thank you.